So we've come to uh, the portion in our story of David's life. And David, if you turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And David has brought this, uh, he is planning to bring the ark back in. We're going to focus much of our time today in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, But I want to give you a backdrop of what is happening. Uh, David has been called uh, to be king. And we see in chapter 5, verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. And at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years And six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. So we've been looking at what's been going on in David's life from a teenager when he was called by Samuel that he was going to be anointed. He was anointed by Samuel that you are going to be the future king. And it's going to be years upon years later. He's going to be in Saul's army. He's going to be part of Saul's family. He is going to now suffer Saul's wrath. And we've been seeing how Saul has been attacking him time after time. And now Saul is dead. And there has been a battle that has been happening over who is going to be king. It has already been established by God who is going to be king, but the people were fighting it out. And now finally, after all of everything is gone, Abner is gone, Ishbosheth is gone, now they're dead. And the only credible option for king is David. And now they stand before David and they, they look at David and they say all the military successes that he's had, he should be king. They look at the prophetic revelation that God has given that he would be king. They look at Abner's endorsement before he died that David should be king. And as we saw last week, the respectful way that David had treated his former enemies all spoke of the fact that he should be king. Now all the leaders journeyed out of their way to install David now as the king and could covenant with him. They're covenanting with him, and he was anointed, as, as Tim had talked about, P.T. talked about last week, that he was anointed with Samuel. He's going to be anointed here by the leaders, and then he will be anointed eventually by all the people in Israel. And so now if you think about David's life, David begins to serve as king at 30 years old. It's kind of amazing. I was talking to PT yesterday, and we were talking about a number of the young pastors in this area, and it's like we were talking about pastors that are taking over churches at 30 years old, 27 years old. It's just kind of uh, interesting. But David is not just taking over a church. David is taking over a huge community. He's taking over God's people at this young an age. He, he reigns for 40 years. He serves seven and a half years um, in Hebron, and then eventually they're going to get Jerusalem. Look with me in verses 6 through 8. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. 
the inhabitants of the land who David said, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off there in their thinking. What was happening here is that the Canaanites had, Jeb, the, um, had this city, and the Jebusites had this city, and they were um, looking to hold Jerusalem at bay. Um, outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is pretty hilly. Um, you, it's hard to get into this area, and it was pretty fortified because there was a wall around this city. So they were thinking as they were seeing David or envisioning David coming and conquering them, they didn't think he could do it. In fact, they basically mocked him by saying, even a blind person or a lame person could protect our city. And David said, verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That's another phrase for Jerusalem. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, verse 8, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. What, what apparently happened, or the strategy that some um, theorists have, is this, that to get into the city... The way they decided to go into the city was to go up a water shaft and have men careen up this water shaft to go into the city by stealth to capture the city from inside and then to open it up for an invading the invading army to come from the outside. It, it's a military gen, uh, it's genius and military strategy. So he sent his force up the shaft. They secured the passageway. They subsequently got the city, and then the city falls. So the city that thought it was going to be inconquerable is now conquered by David. So David conquers the city. He reigns in this city. He makes his home in his city, in this city, and this becomes the city of David. What you will find as you go through chapter 5 is this, that whenever David came to start to attack a city or think about attacking a city, he would inquire of the Lord and try to figure out what God would have for him to do. In verses 11 and following, we will find that Hiram, the king of Tyre, is hearing of the build uh, the um, strength of David, and what he does is he says, I'm going to bring cedars planks to this place, and I'm going to build a house for David. He's becoming so well-known and so popular. He's being established. He is finding himself being exalted, and he's doing this for the glory and honor of God, and it's happening among the people, which is pretty incredible. David is going to take a number of people into his family, concubines and wives, and I won't spend the time talking about this, but what I will say is this, that the number of concubines and wives that leaders often took them by that time was a sign of their power and their authority and their reign. You will see David does this. You will see his son Solomon does this. It does go against biblical principles that a king is supposed to have one wife, and it was absolutely wrong, but it is showing how incredibly strong and powerful David is becoming at this time. Look with me in verse 17. It says, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all of Philistine went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the city of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give them the Philistines into your hands. So if you notice that before David pursued and before David took steps, what he did was he inquired of the Lord, he asked the Lord for his counsel, and God worked in his life. Jump with me to verse 22. 
and the Philistines came yet again. So David had um, defeated them uh, the first run, and the Philistines now come up again against him. And in verse 23, it says, And David inquired of the Lord again. But the Lord said to him, You shall not go up. So if you notice, once again, David is, before he takes a step, he's asking God. Keep that in mind as we get to chapter 6. Now, David is in Jerusalem. He has defeated the Philistines. He has, he's gone into battle against these Philistines, and he has fought them, and he has defeated them. He's been following in the steps of the Lord, and he is great, getting great might in his life. He is having rulers coming and acknowledging him. And David now says, we're in Jerusalem. I want to make this the center of worship again. And what does he think in his mind? He thinks about the Ark of the Covenant. Look with me. He says in verse, chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of, the God, ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember this ark? Now, this ark was back in when Israel was in the desert, after they had left Egypt and they're in the desert, God had established that they create this ark. It's, it's a box. It's a box. It's about three and a half feet wide, two and a quarter feet, I'm sorry, three and a quarter feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. It's just a box. And this box it's kind of like, uh, I was thinking about like the chest. My, my wife had a chest at the front uh, foot of our bed that included, you know, she had some things from her family that were included in that box. It's just kind of like a box. You may, you may have one in, like that in your home. And that box was covered in gold. Great. Now, within the, on top of the box, there were two angels, figurines of angels, and the cherubim, and their wings are out, and they're touching one another. There are holes, two pairs of um, rings on each side where you would put poles through this box. On top of the box, they called it the mercy seat. It was laden with gold, and this box was an important box of worship. What it symbolized was the presence of God in their lives. So what would happen is this, that this box would be taken... And within the box, I should tell you what was in the box. What was in the box? Aaron's rod was in the box. Um, a bowl, a gold bowl of manna was in the box. And you remember when Moses had received the Ten Commandments and he had come down and he saw them worshiping the golden calf? Remember what they did, what he did with those tablets? He dropped them, he slammed them on the ground. Those broken tablets are in the box. So in this box, we have Aaron's rod, we have manna, and we have the Ten Commandments. And this box symbolized the presence of God. Amazing. So what it could tell you happened was this. When God stopped being at the center of worship, what they saw was this box had some power. So what they would do is they would take this box as like a token into battle, thinking that, well, you know, this box is going to help us win the victory. But earlier in 1 Samuel, if you got a chance to read it, what would happen is that the Philistines conquered, and they took the box. And they took this box, 
and now Israel doesn't have it. It's actually a kind of funny story. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, I believe it is, um, after Phil, the Philistines got the box, the ark, they took it and they put it in their temple, the temple of Dagon. And if you're familiar with the story, it's actually kind of funny. They put the ark before their god, Dagon, and the next morning they walk in, and Dagon is on the floor in front of the box. And it's like, what happened to have Dagon, right? And so what do they do to their god? They go and pick up their god, and they put it back on the shelf in front of the box. And the next morning, Dagon is headless and handless, you're powerless before me. And then that box, this ark, now all of a sudden the, the Philistines are starting to have sores in their bodies and people are dying and it's like, you got to get rid of this box. got to get rid of it. And so now they send it to another city, to Gath. And then the same thing is happening and it's like, just get rid of this box. And, and they call upon their priest and they say, what are we going to do with this box? What are we going to do with this ark? And they said, you need to make a sin offering to the God. And they talked about making some golden tumors and um, the tumors that they were having. And then I think rats or mice, golden mice. And they were supposed to be offering and sacrifice. And they put this ark on a cart and they sent it back. And they said, you know what? We will see if the real God, or they didn't say the real God, if the God of Israel is really doing this, because if the ark goes back towards Israel, then we know that he's the one doing this to us. But if the ark just goes anywhere, we know that it's just happening. And what do you know? It goes back to the people of God. But then they store this box for, for quite a long time until David remembers, where's the box? Where's the ark? And David, I honestly believe, wants to do this in a way that is honoring God. He is he's sincerely desiring that God be worshipped. And he wants to bring this ark back so that we can have the presence of God again. The problem is if you get a chance to read Moses' prohibitions that God had given through Moses, there's supposed to be no hands on this ark. Don't touch the ark. Because it symbolizes what? The presence of God. There's supposed to be no eyes on this ark. Because you cannot look at the holiness of God. And you dare not put it on any cart. You carry this ark with poles, and it's only special people that can, holy people, that, the, that you don't touch this ark, that when it comes out of the Holy of Holies, that's where the ark was settled, in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, when you take it out of there, you cover it so that the people can't see it. You don't touch it, so you put the poles through it. You carry it on your shoulders, you Kohite men, and you walk this ark. David did everything wrong. Verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Aoi, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, the ark of the Lord. And Aio went before the ark, and David 
and all the house were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and hymns and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It must have been pretty lively. And then they came to the threshing floor at Nacon, and Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Gone. All right, so a couple hundred people here, right? If somebody falls down up front, maybe some of you in the back, it will take some time to, for you to realize it. But there are 30,000 people here. So David is way ahead here as the ark is going, and he's singing and dancing and having a great time, and Uzzah drops dead. And now you could start to notice the music stops. And the music starts to stop, and, and David's looking around, and David wants to know what's happening. And David inquires, what in the world's going on? And finally, he's walking through these 30,000 people, and he looks. And Uzzah is dead beside the ark. He's gone. And David says, what in the world happened? I don't understand. And, and, and they say to him that the oxen had stumbled, and the cart buckled and the ark was falling and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark and God struck him dead. I don't know what you're feeling, but um, you ever wonder why God did that? (laughs) David sits there and he, he sees Uzzah by the side in verse 8. He says, and David was what? He was angry because the Lord had broken out at Uzzah. It's interesting. I won't have time to do it. But if you go back to chapter 5, it talked about God breaking out against the Philistines in his anger. In the same way, God is breaking out against Uzzah in his anger. And David, verse 9, was, was afraid of God. Not only was he angry because of the Lord had broken out, he was afraid of the Lord. And he said, how can I let the ark come to me? So David was not willing that that ark come. Do you ever do that? You ever find yourself angry at God because of something that's happened? Do you ever see yourself afraid of God? And our natural tendency when we have anger or avoidance, um, anger and afraidness in our lives, what do we do? We avoid. I don't want to deal with away with you. Go. We were talking about our search through the Old Testament. Um, and you ever hear somebody say that there's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God? You ever hear that, right? Well, the Old Testament God was the God of wrath, and the New Testament God is the God of love, and they don't know their Bible too well. <laughs> because can you think of any time in the New Testament where God reached out in his anger and wrath and took somebody? Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament. Uzzah in the Old Testament, but you remember Ananias and Sapphira in the New? Acts chapter 5. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead immediately. This is a God of holy wrath and holy justice. And if he wanted to, he could take all of us out 
And none of us could say a word. And the fear that must have been among those people. And maybe the anger that is there. And they say, away with him. Away with him. So what David does is he, he gives this box. He gives this ark to another man. He says, you take this ark. You hold on to it. He gives it to Obed-Edom, the, Gitta, uh, the Gittite. And he says, you take care of it. And that box is there for three months. I wonder what David did in three months. I wonder what David did after hearing of Uzzah's death and then burying Uzzah and having to deal with what in the world went wrong. I think what he did for three months is he studied the holiness of God. I think he went back to the scriptures to say, where did we go wrong? And he went back to the Old Testament. He saw that the Ark of the Covenant was was speaking of God. It was about the presence of God. And you can only enter the presence of God through a certain means. And there were only certain people that would speak for God. And it was going to, that Ark needed to be moved in a specific way. It gets me wondering at times, um, how do you respond when you tell people how to love you and they don't? When you tell people how to respond to you and they don't, how do you deal with it? Don't you get angry? Well, I'm a sinful man and I clearly do get angry, but God is not sinful. God is perfectly holy and just. And he says, you enter my presence by this means and this means alone. So David spent some time understanding this ark. He spent some time going back to understand what God was speaking. Can I talk to you a little bit about the ark for a moment? This ark just kind of talks to me. The ark, I said, was a box. Nothing special about the box itself. But the ark represented the power of God. That that ark, in their presence was about the power of God in their lives. See, that ark was preaching to them that I am the sovereign one and I am the one that's in control. I am providential in your life. It speaks of the power of God. The ark also speaks of the presence of God. God is with you. That if you remember that that ark is in the Holy of Holies, but then when God would move, you remember he would lead them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, that ark would then move and that cloud would go and it was symbolizing the presence of God in their lives. So the ark was speaking to them about the power of God. It was speaking to them about the presence of God, but it was also speaking to them about the purity of God. God is perfect. He is holy. There is none like him. He is unlike us. He is completely other than us. And that ark is speaking to the purity of God. But that's just even the ark above it. How about if we even had the opportunity to open the ark? What does the ark speak to us? The ark speaks of this this rod. I told you there were three things. The, The rod of Aaron. That, that rod was the thing that had been turned into a snake, you remember? And, and it was used so many times during the Exodus. But if you remember in, in Exodus ch- oh, chapter 16, I believe it is, where Aaron's 
words are being challenged, that Aaron is being challenged, his leadership is being challenged. And a number of people are coming at Aaron and they're saying that we do not trust your leadership. And what God said is this, I want you to take a rod from each of the tribal leaders and I want you to put that in the tent of meeting. And when you put each one of those rods in the tent of meeting, I'm going to do something for the one that is my leader. And if you remember the story, the next day he goes in and the one rod, Aaron's rod, buds. It's got blossoms on it, but not only has budding and blossoms, it actually has ripened almonds on it. And it's speaking, that box, that Aaron's rod is speaking of God's protection for you by giving you godly leaders. Within the box, it's not only Aaron's rod that's speaking of God's protection, it's the manna. What was the manna? It was his provision that day after day after day, you would go and you would get manna from God. Your substance. I need to be fed, and God would provide that substance for you every day. When would we get it? Every day. Would he give us a week's worth? No. A month's worth? No. He gave you your sustenance every day. Why? Because I need to depend upon God, that God, you are with me every single day of my life that I can trust you. Can you imagine if he gave you manna for a week or a month or a year? I wouldn't even be dealing with God because I need, I've got my needs fulfilled until my manna started to run low. So in the box, God is speaking of his leader that is protecting you. He is speaking of the manna that's providing for you, but he is also speaking through those 10 commandments that are in there, the proclamation of God, the precepts of God. This box is so special that above the box, we are seeing the power of God, the presence of God, the purity of God. Within the box, you are seeing God's protection, his provision, and his precepts for you. And then on top of the box, this is incredible, on top of the box is what? The mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on this holy of holies to pardon sin for the people. This was not just a box. So when Uzzah stuck out his hand, probably your first reaction would be, God, why would you do that? That's so unfair to Uzzah. I want to actually believe that Uzzah is a believer. I'm not sure. There's nothing in the scripture that would say it. I want to believe that he was a God-honoring, he loved God. He didn't follow God's word. He stuck out his hand and he received God's judgment. Jonathan Edwards, um, and then I heard R.C. Sproul talk about this. Why did God strike us a dead? It was interesting that um, R.C. Sproul talked about the fact that Uzzah assumed that the stain of the ground would be worse than the stain of his own hand. See, the ground has never rebelled against God. 
the ground has never forsaken him. The ground has never spit in his face in glory. The ground has never forsaken God's grace. The ground does exactly what the ground is supposed to do. It's ground. But we don't. Day after day, I rebel against God. So do you. Day after day, I I forsake God. So do you. Day after day, I don't see God's glory in the cross. So do you. And Asa assumed that left to his own devices that he could do something to do something for God. And God says, no. So David takes some time. And he says, wait a minute, I need to go back and figure out what we did wrong. Verse 12. And it was told to King David that the Lord had been blessing the house of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, I have no idea here. I'll be honest with you. Some commentators I was reading through see this as actually he has an impure motive. He hears that God is blessing this guy, so he wants to get the blessing for himself. I don't think that's the case. I think he spent three months talking about the worship of God, the holiness of God, and now he recognizes God is not only a God who's holy, but God is a God who's gracious and good. And he hears it again. He hears how God has blessed Obed-Edom, and he wants that blessing as well for the people. So he goes after consulting the word. Now he goes in the right way, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark, now they're no longer going to put this, no longer going to put this on a cart. They're going to bear it. The right people are going to do it. The ark, and they had gone six steps, so they had gone one. Can you imagine being the group even though I'm following, I know that the last guy that touched this ark and was with this ark died. So now I'm carrying this ark. And I'll go, step one, step two, step three, four, five, six. And then David says, let's worship the God. Let's offer a sacrifice to him. And, and the hearts that must have been pounding as they lifted this up. And now, because they understand their guilt, but they are now coming down to understand the grace of God, that God, you've been so very gracious to me. You could have struck me down just like Uzzah, but you didn't. You've allowed me amazing grace. And the guilt now has been washed away by your grace. And now it leads to amazing gratitude in their lives. They had gone six steps. He had sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sounds of the horn. It's amazing that when you are allowed to go into the presence of God, it leads to such great joy in your life. It should. When you can understand the, the, the immensity of your guilt and the incredible gravity of his grace, it should waken you to such amazing gratitude for what he has done for you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father. Praise Son. Praise the Holy Ghost. And if that is not in your hearts today, 
I ask you to go back to understand the depth of your sin. I want you to understand the depth of his amazing grace and worship him today. The last part of the story I need to talk to you about is Michael or Michael. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw that King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Remember that phrase, before the Lord. And she despised him in, his, in her heart. His wife's not with him in worship, which is interesting. I mean, 30,000 people are with David, but his wife is not there with him. And she looks out and she sees this king, and this king is hooping and hollering. And she's just so disgusted and embarrassed. You ever notice that those that are outside the faith of God look at us and they think that we're a little crazy that we're here on a Sunday morning? And they were a little crazy by singing the songs that we sing and worshiping. They think we're nuts. We're crazy. She's, she's outside of the faith. What I find interesting about Michal here is look at verse 16 and then jump down to verse 23. What does it say? But Michal, the daughter of who? Saul. Look at verse 20. I skipped verse 20. But Michal, the daughter of Saul. Each time she is mentioned here, verse 16, verse 20, and verse 23, she is mentioned as the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David, not the daughter of God. She is mentioned as the daughter of Saul. I think that's telling. I really do. Michal despises David in her heart. David now is bringing this worship, um, this worship crew home, and now he brings the ark into the tent that he's created for God, uh, for God's worship. And it's now there, and he's, he's so excited, and he, he just can't wait to go home and talk to his wife and tell her about all the wonderful things that have happened. And in verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How can the king of Israel honor himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servant females as one vulgar fellow shamelessly uncovers himself? Now, don't mistake in this. I don't think he's walking around naked. It's not, I don't think that's what it's happening. What he did was he took off his, his, his kingly garment and he was just like the rest of us. He was just a common person because he saw himself not primarily as the king above these people. He saw himself as a servant of the living God. And he is worshiping along with other worshipers. And Michal can't stand this because what was Michal's father? Saul was all about the earthly. Saul was all about the material. He was not about God. And I think Michal has learned very well from her father. Michal, in her heart, despises him. Her character is bitter, and it's angry, and it's disgusting. I can't stand you, David. And out of her character of her heart is coming the conduct. She is mocking him. It's interesting that David's heart is filled with the glory of God, and Michal's heart is filled with the hatred of David. David is is so pleasing to God right now, and he is so displeased, displeasing in the minds of his wife. 
Verse 21, and David said to Michal, four things. He said, first, it was before the Lord. I love that phrase because it's a repeated phrase. Mikkel is so concerned about the eyes of everybody else in this world. Maybe that's you. I know it's been me at times where I'm so concerned about how other people are going to view me. David wasn't concerned about other people, how they were looking. David was concerned about being before the eyes of God. How is God seeing me today? He says, I was doing this before the eyes of God. I was with God. I can't imagine that God allowed me in his presence today before his eyes. The second thing he said was this, who chose me. Such a beautiful phrase to me. Scripture tells me that God chose me before the foundation of this world. Peter says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Don't you know how precious it is to be chosen by God? Maybe you were one of those on the um, schoolyard. You remember when they used to pick teams, right? And they would pick teams, right? And I'm going to get this guy first and this. And maybe you were one of the very last ones. It's like, I guess I got to take him. That's not how God chooses you. God joyously chose you if you're in him. Oh, I love that. He, he's before the face of God, number one. Number two, he chose me. Then, then I don't know if this is a jab or not. He says, above your father and above his house. He may have been jabbing at Mikel. I think he's probably saying, Mikel, take your eyes off the earthly. You need to look vertically. You need to look horizontally. God is the one that allows us to come before his face because he chooses us and he wants us to recognize it's not about earth, it's about heaven. Fix your eyes heavenward, Mikel. And then he says the fourth thing. You before the Lord, you chose me above your father. I'm sorry, the third thing, and he appointed me. Appointed me to be a a priest, a prince over Israel and the people of the Lord. He's appointed me to his service. And then he closes with this, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. Just a couple of warnings I want you to consider. With Michal, Saul's daughter, she seemed godless. Her heart seemed to be devoid of any saving knowledge of God. She was focused on the earthly and the material. She was so earthly-minded. She was so concerned about the pursuits, the passions, the principles, and the uh, priorities of this world. Not God. Scripture tells us that whatever we sow, we will also what? We will reap. She was sowing idolatry in her heart. She was sowing unbelief in her heart. And in doing so, she was reaping a corrupt life. We need to be very careful about the bitterness and the resentment and the things that are stewing in our hearts. If you do not deal with those, they can have such a negative impact on your family and a negative impact on the glory of God. Verse 23, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Oh, thanks. Probably suffered the judgment of God. 
clearly this was not a loving marriage, so they were probably not connected very often. But clearly, Mikkel's heart was away from God. So what do I learn this from this? God's not safe. But he is good. There's so many people today that believe that they can just enter the presence of God by their own whims. They believe that when God looks down on them, that they're basically good and that God should allow me into heaven. (laughs) They're mistaken. God is a holy God. In Romans chapter 3, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, it was to show in his righteousness that at this present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I I believe that the ark doesn't only just talk to us about God, but it talks to us specifically about Jesus. Because if you remember the elements I talked to you about, Jesus Christ is power. He is the sovereign God of this universe. He created this universe. He spoke it into existence. Jesus Christ is present with us. You remember it's called Emmanuel? What does that mean? God with us. God came down in human form to be with you. He has that same body today. God is with us. See, the ark is speaking of the power of God, but it speaks of the power of Christ. It speaks of the presence of God, but it speaks specifically of the presence of Christ. God is with us today. Christ is with us. It speaks of the purity of God. We needed a perfect lamb that was going to take away our sins. Because I could not provide it. Jesus Christ provided it for me and for you. Within the ark, he speaks to us. He speaks in the fact that he is our protected leader. He's protecting us. Within the ark, you remember, it also speaks of his provision. He's providing for you every day, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And within the ark, he is the word. He is the word of God. He's proclaiming to you. But the ultimate way that I believe that that ark speaks to us about Christ is on that mercy seat. And once a year, a priest would go in and pour blood on that mercy seat for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, on his mercy seat at Calvary, bore the anger and the wrath of God for you and for me. His blood was spilled and not poured out on a box, but poured out before his Father for you and for me if you trust him. And you can enter the presence of God with no fear today if you trust him. The writer of the Hebrews said this, let us approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
we still have a sovereign God. We still have a holy God. But what he has done for you and for me, if you trust in him, is he says, come to me. Oh, one of beautiful passages in Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God offers you entrance into his presence. And now we don't have the dreaded fear. We have a reverential fear. (laughs) That God, you bring me near. I pray today that this God who is not safe, he's not, but he is so very good to you. And if you are in him, you are safe in him. The ark speaks to us, points us to Christ. I pray today that you would hear Christ speaking in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray. As David inquired of you before he went into battle, but he failed to inquire of you when he went into your presence. Father, counsel us in that way. Maybe some of us come into the worship service just flippantly, haphazardly. We don't even think about you, Lord. We're here to have a good time. We're here to sing some great songs. We're here to hear a message. But Father, this is a worship service. It's about your glory. So, Lord, help us to be mindful of coming into your presence and help us to know that we don't just come into your presence with sinful hands. We, we come into your presence by the righteous hands of Christ, by the righteous work of Christ. Father, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in your son, Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking that the truth, maybe that they would have the fear that I, I'm afraid of entering your presence. That's true but help them to know that they can enter your presence through the precious blood of your son. Help them to bend their knee today. Help them to hear the word preached today through the ark, through the cross, and help us to bring glory and honor to your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.